Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to be back with you. As I said, we're going to be finishing up my series on 1 Timothy today. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to the end of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've got the verses up here on the screen. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but as long as you stay in 1 Timothy 6, you'll be able to, I guess, that'll be base camp then uh, to, to carry the metaphor forward. 1 Timothy 6 is where we'll be. We'll be bouncing around. For those of you who uh, perhaps are new to City on a Hill, welcome. Or maybe you're new to church altogether. I'm glad you're here. I have to allow for the fact, I hope, that uh, each and every week there are folks who are here for the very first time. And so what's very normal and natural for those that have been coming for a long time may feel very foreign and new to you. So let me just say, I'm glad you're here. You're at a good place. You're at a safe place. And really the Bible says, seek and ye shall find. And some of you are here because a friend invited you or you're going through a rough patch and you're really seeking God. You're seeking truth. You're seeking answers. And one of the things that Christians have come to understand is when we start seeking God, what we realize little by little is that He, in fact, has been seeking us, and that you are here, and it may be that instead of uh, your search for God, it may be that you realize God looking for you like a lost sheep, and so just glad you're here, and come back, I mean, stay after it, my name is Tom Richter, I'm a pastor in Queens, and I've been uh, blessed to be part of the teaching team here, because my church meets in the evening time, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, that's that, let me, let me set you up now with First Timothy, the apostle Paul plants these churches, a guy named Saul, very successful, very religious, and uh, concerned about this, this Jewish cult, this sect that was claiming that this one particular rabbi had died and risen from the dead. Followers claimed he was Messiah and he was risen from the dead. And if that's true, then he was Messiah. But we all know people don't just rise from the dead. So he goes out trying to snuff it out, quite literally killing that movement. He's got some papers that authorize him to go to Damascus to kill anybody or to at least imprison and, and, and badger those that would be followers of this Jesus. When he meets, you're right, on this, on this tour, on this, you know, place where he's, he's authorized to go and harm all these Christians, you know that on the Damascus off-ramp, the untamable tiger Paul, Saul, met the line of Judah, Jesus, right? And the risen Lord appears to him there, and he's right there at a, at a you know, at the Damascus off-ramp. There's an Exxon and a Waffle House, and he's looking, and right there, and it's, he's, hey, why are you coming after me? He's like, what do you, ah, what do you mean coming after you? I'm after your followers or whatever. The only way I could come after you is if you're alive. He's alive, blinded. You know the rest of the story. Saul becomes Paul, becomes this missionary, and begins preaching and planting. When he gets churches built up, he goes on to another city. He gets this church built up in Ephesus, goes on to another city. And as he's leaving, you can read about this in the book of Acts. As he's leaving, he says, listen, I know what's going to happen. Like Babe Ruth calling his shot, predicting what's going to happen next. Paul tell, he says, what's going to happen is, I've been preaching this pretty simple message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What's going to happen is there's going to be people come after me and they're going to complicate it. They're going to make it uh, 
yeah, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, but yeah, I mean, that's great. You got to rely on Jesus, but there's also these other things you want to do if you want to know the real truth, if you want to have real access to God. And so he's telling Timothy, I'm going to leave you here to watch out for these dudes. They're going to come in here. They're false teachers. They want to tell you that, yeah, yeah, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, but if you really want to be spiritual, right, you really want to know the real deep truths of God, you got to go into the Old Testament. You got to research the genealogy. You got to, you know, make up all these myths about, you know, what happened to Noah's father, you know, and what happened to Noah's great great grandfather, what, you know, and all that stuff, uh, and get into all that and make that the primary focus of everything. That's what's going to happen. And sure enough, that's what did happen. And sometimes I think that that can happen even today in churches. Uh, for those of you that are, you know, kind of new to all this, you know, it, it might be good to know that, that sometimes if you have a church that basically just opens the Bible and says, hey, we're trying to be a church that's going to preach what's in here. And, uh, you know, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and we're supposed to be uh, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in that every day and, uh, yeah, follow the Bible. It's almost like some, sometimes people go, well, yeah, but that's not enough. You know, I was, I was joking about this and maybe this will make sense to just the very small portion of people who've ever experienced this, but I was talking to a young man in church, and he goes, uh, Tom, you know, sometimes I feel like things are just too normal here at this church, you know, and if you really wanted to grow, you should just throw out some bizarre, random, legalistic thing, and suddenly you'd have this huge growth. Just be like, we're the church that preaches the gospel. Oh, and we're the church that never wears shorts. <laughs> and just kind of make that the thing, and everybody kind of rallies around that, then we can all look down on the other people that do wear shorts, and suddenly you'd have this massive growth. He's like, just do something a little bit weird, you know? What he means is add some legalism. And he was joking about it, but I thought that was a pretty perceptive insight for this, you know, smart aleck college kid. He was, he was, he's right. He's like, you gotta, you gotta give it, because it almost feels like, well, to believe in Jesus and live in his freedom. Well, no, there's gotta be more to it than that. Well, that's these false teachers come in to fill that vacuum. And they say, I can tell you some things. You, you know, you don't need to eat that food. You didn't need to eat this food, not that food. Ooh, no, sorry. You know, right. And, and add all this extra legalism. That's what Paul's up against. And so, I mean, excuse me, that's what Timothy is up against. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see them again. They come up. He talks about, uh, you know, verse 3, for example, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, he describes these false teachers. Puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Ugh. Unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. What does that lead to? Does that lead to a good place? I mean, do you ever read a, you want to know the absolute dregs of the internet? Go to a news article and read the comments section. It's the absolute bottom of the barrel, right? Nobody ever gets done with reading those comments and goes, you know, I am edified and have been convinced of the logic of my opponent's position, right? It's just nonsense and hatred. This is what it says it leads to. Uh, uh, it leads to envy. Dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people, depraved in mind, deprived of truth. That leads to uh, today's theme. And I, I thought about introducing this sermon by saying, uh, by trying to convince you that life is a fight. You know, that was going to be my opening line before I got distracted and started talking about other things. Life is a fight. But then I thought, I, I, that needs no introduction. Who am I talking to? You know what I mean? Life is a fight. You already know that. If you live anywhere within 50 miles of New York City, all you New Yorkers, you already know, right? Life is a fight. I think about uh, uh, just yesterday, my wife and I had such a simple plan. We were going to take our kids out, and we were going to go 
to uh, uh, Nassau County. We we're going to Westbury. We do a little, little shopping there in a little shopping area near the mall. Then we were going to have uh, a little lunch. And because we knew that this particular place we liked was crowded, we would go at 3 p.m. Because why would, why would it be crowded at 3 p.m. on a Saturday in Westbury? We couldn't go. And, and my daughter is literally weeping. And so I did the only thing that, you know, parents did. We pulled in and said, well, let's talk about it. I mean, we've made this authoritative decision as parents. We're not going to go, but you're crying. And I guess your tears can manipulate us into doing what you want because you're the six-year-old. So here, you lead the family for a while. And so we sit there, all right, completely owned by this kid. Other kids are screaming. Everybody's hangry, which is hungry plus angry. You know that? And so finally, I take her in. I say, if you can find a place to sit... Right? Then, then, we'll, then we'll eat here. And as she gets in there, she's like, this is miserable. Why'd you bring me in here? I'm like, because I'm a bad father who doesn't know what he's doing. There's no manual for this. So we go outside. She's like, we can eat in the parking lot, but it's freezing. Now she's cold and hungry and angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went to Chili's. The point is, <laughs> the point is life's a fight. And I just think in, like, back home in Kentucky, they don't understand that concept. They don't understand like, Oh, I went to school today. What was that like? It's like, what are you talking about? I drove up. I dropped the kid off. Really? You didn't, you know, fight your way through and get a parking spot. And, you know, it's like, no. I, you know. And then they talk about these garages. The, the point is, we don't have those. And I don't. And uh, uh, you, already, you don't need to be convinced that life is a fight. Often it is little things like what I'm talking about. Fighting for a parking spot. Come on. At the end of the day, that's not a big deal. We just went somewhere else. But for those of you who take public transportation, fighting for a seat on the bus or fighting for the spot on the Long Island Railroad uh, or how many of you ever, uh, little things like fighting with customer service over a dispute on a bill? Do you ever have to call, uh, right? And, uh, you know, some of, is anybody actually here today? Are you still on hold from a call you placed <laughs> Thursday? Sort of put the phone in your pocket, brought it to church with you on the off chance, you know, and the whole time, the hold message is this, this message, your call is very important to us. And after five hours of hearing that, I can tell you one thing I'm certain of is that my call is not at all important to you. And uh, the phone should blow up in a burst of irony, but it never does. Sometimes, you know, oh, okay, so it life's a fight. You fight over little things, but sometimes the fights are bigger. Sometimes the fights are bigger. And on Martin Luther King weekend, Reverend Martin Luther King, count how many times tomorrow they say doctor, count how many times they say reverend. You know, it's like the secular humanism wants to forget this was a Baptist preacher who realized these are spiritual problems. And we're like, well, let's all agree. Those were good secular messages. Really? I have a dream. It's a secular. It was a sermon. You don't quote Isaiah and Amos and then say, oh, but like you couldn't preach. I have a dream in a public school. He's a preacher. These are spiritual things. And I'm not trying to co-op his legacy for the church or against the church. I'm just saying, you, you, you know, you can't leave out reverend. Uh, and, and we didn't th- this morning, and I appreciate it. I actually asked Jamal for those notes. I'm going to share them with my church tonight. Um, you get the point. He was fighting against something that's happening today. Some of you have experienced fighting against injustice, fighting against not being treated fairly because of the color of your skin. And that's a big fight. Fighting, some of you are fighting to get some measure of control over your life. Some of you are fighting addiction. Some of you are, are fighting Big fights, custody over children in a divorce, and splitting up property. Those aren't little fights. That's not a parking spot on a Saturday afternoon. Big fights. And, you know, sometimes those fights are outside the home, right? Fighting to get a raise at work or just some appreciation. When I preached my series on work, the thing that came up was not over and over, I want more money. The thing that came up was frustration for a total lack of appreciation. It was like, what I do doesn't matter. 
Over and over, workers told me that. If I do a great job, the boss takes all the credit. If I do a lousy job, I take all the blame. Eventually, I wonder, why am I working so hard? Like, what? I just, I need some, right, appreciation and all that. And you're fighting to get that. You're fighting to get some of that respect at work. We're fighting with coworkers because of petty office politics. The thing that came up over and over when it came to work was, you know, uh, the, the fights were things over holiday vacation days. If you, if you take a holiday, their policy was the next year you have to work that holiday in some sort of nursing setup. And over and over again, they would, you know, shiftily try to cheat and stuff and that kind of thing. And sometimes, of course, the fights, and these are the worst, are inside the home. You know that the people who have the greatest potential to wound you are the people who are closest to you, Right? Because they can use short-range weaponry. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, look, you, when you go out, in, at least where I live, when you go out on the street, you put your armor on. And you literally put armor on because it's freezing outside. So you literally put some jacket on, some coat on. And because it's cold, it's a good metaphor for your soul. What's happening is you're armored up. And, you go to, and when you, in my neighborhood, you walk up and down the street and people, are, they're walking with purpose and they're armored up. And if you bump into them, you might say sorry, you might not. The point is you bounce off each other because you're all armored up, you know. And if somebody gets mad at you on the LIE, you, you know, you, they, 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 they give you the salute that, that lets you know they're mad at you or whatever. And they're cursing at you and they're yelling at you. That stuff, at least it bounces right off me. Why? Because as they're flying past, I go, I don't know you, right? Or I'm like... I, is that my deacon? Like, what, you know, like, I hope I don't know. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? But by and large, that stuff just ping, ping, bounces right off you. Why? You got your armor on. But then when you get to work, you take a layer of that armor off. And that's why what they say stings a little more. See? And then when you get with your friends, you take another layer off. And then when you get your home with your spouse and your kids, you, here's my naked beating heart. And what would just bounce off if it came from anybody else cuts so deeply because you're right and that's why listen spouses such power your words have i don't know why that came out yoda i didn't mean for it like halfway through i was like this is some jedi stuff i'm sharing here listen listen think about the power of your words right because you're There's no armor left there, completely vulnerable with one another. And the reason couples get into crisis is they put armor the only place they can around their hearts. They become defensive and they stonewall. Hey, you're hurting me. I'm hurting back because it's all they know, right? But there's good news. There's hope. On the flip side, spouses, no one can encourage your spouse like you can. Your words mean more to him or her than anybody else. You have this power to build up because you don't have to fight through all the armor, right? It's fighting. Day by day, little by little, takes its toll. What happens after all this fighting? Depends on your personality. And I'll let you assess who you are. Some of you are passive people. So for you, day after day, year after year of this fighting, you just put the covers over the head. You're just fatigued and you just get exhausted by the whole thing and you become depressed and discouraged it's internalized if you're a passive person that's what happens year after year of this fighting day after day if you are an aggressive person you find that you have a very short fuse and you lash out at others and that after all this fighting you you fight right back and you become an angry person for many of us we're neither fully passive nor aggressive we're passive aggressive We lash out in ways where we can be like, what? All I said, what? Right? 
we sort of, you know, uh, uh, in nasty ways. We're never really aggressive. We never really actually attack someone, but we're totally attacking someone. And why? Because of all that fighting. Where does all, where does all this fighting come from? Life's a fight. Everything from a seat on the train to a parking space to injustice to work, getting respect to my own family. Where does this fighting come from? That is a big question. But it happens. The Bible is a big question kind of book. You know what I mean? If there's ever a time to ask questions like, where does human fighting come from? Or what is the meaning of life? Church is a good time to ask those questions. So where does fighting come from? The Bible says the answer is sin. And if you immediately thought, ah, that explains all my wicked enemies. It does. But I'm also talking about you. And if you thought, oh, this is just shaming, of course I know. I'm also talking about other people. I'm talking about everybody, right? Sin has both hurt you and you have hurt others through sin. This is what 1 Timothy is talking about when it says these, these uh, uh, motivations of the heart. And, and, and we fight in this sin where it comes from. Uh, I'm going to make a case. We're going we're to briefly deviate to a scripture in James. We'll come right back. I'll, I'll show it to you. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to make the case that people are more likely to fight when they don't feel safe. And here's what I mean. Stay with me. Sin is saying, God, I don't want you to have control of my life. I'm going to make decisions that are inward. I'm going to make some choices where it's not your kingdom, it's my kingdom. Okay? You got to understand the biblical definition of sin. Sin is not doing naughty little things or whatever. Those are all symptoms. Sin is a matter of the heart turning inward where, God, you're not the king. I'm the king. Understand? I'm the king of my own kingdom. Now, I'm a creature, the Bible says. I have no right to ever be a king. But sin is when I say, I want to be king of my own kingdom. Thank you very much. Now, watch this. If that's true, that's sin. That's the turning inward. That begins to cause all kinds of things. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to build up my kingdom. <clears throat> I'm trying to protect my. That's my seat on the, <clears throat> on the train. That's my parking spot. I have a right to, to be able to eat at this restaurant even though it's full. And, and I have a right to this and that. And we begin fighting all these things for my kingdom. I'm trying to build up my kingdom. What's the problem with all this? If I'm the king of my little kingdom, I'm trying to get all the resources I can into my kingdom. What I suddenly realize is, look at all of you. You're kings of your little kingdom too. And if that's true, if I'm trying to be king of my little kingdom and you're trying to be king of your little kingdom, there's only so much kingdom up for grabs. And if I don't get what's mine, I've got to take it from somebody else. And all these little kingdoms... We are right now collectively all playing real life clash of clans. We are right now. We are. That's what sin is. This turning inward. Okay. This turning inward where I'm trying to build up my kingdom and I'm robbing other people and you're trying to build up your kingdom. And if this all happened, you know, a hundred years ago, then the way we would build up kingdoms would be to acquire catapults and fences and possessions and livestock. The way we do it today, we don't do it that way. The way we do it today, fundamentally, possessions and livestock and catapults and fences, it's all just money. The currency of defending a kingdom in 2016 is money. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to predict it. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to acquire it. I'm trying to protect it, I mean to say. Here, let me show you. In James chapter 4, verse 1, this is what the Bible asks. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
know, that's unbelievable, James. I was just asking this church that very question. I'm so glad you're here. This is what we're talking about. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says there's something going on inside you. Look, look, look. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Whoa, 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 whoa. You you might want to pause right there, at least I would. When James is accusing us that the reason we fight so much is because of these desires. We're trying to build our kingdom. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a big difference in trying to be selfish and protect my kingdom and actually murdering somebody. I've never murdered somebody. And this is where... James's half-brother, Jesus, would have helped us. James was the half... They had the same mom. What he said was, uh, uh, he remembers Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what Jesus said was, look, 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 look. A lot of times in life, you're focused on the soil of your life. Let me explain. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, what he said was something very interesting. He says, you're giving yourself credit because the law says do not murder, and you've never murdered somebody. But has it ever occurred to you that you've yelled out, you fool, in anger in your heart? He said, you've, considered mur- you've, you've, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus' point is this. Think about it like soil. The soil of my life has been some environmental factors such as I grew up in a family where we didn't solve things with violence, okay? We didn't punch our way out of problems and things like that. We talked about them. There was just a culture of civility there. Hmm? Say somebody else grew up where the soil, say a kid on the rough streets of Baltimore grows up, joins a gang, and all he knows is to solve problems with violence. Now watch this. The same seed of anger gets planted in both soils. Mine sort of never really grows. It doesn't have the proper watering and nutrients to grow into actual gun violence or killing someone. His anger puts him in a spot where he picks up a gun and shoots someone and is forever known as the murderer. Jesus says, you're actually looking at yourself, patting yourself on the back for having good soil, which you had nothing to do with. What I'm here to talk to you is this. It's the same seed. You can't congratulate yourself for being the person who had better soil. You had nothing to do with that. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to deal with the seed of anger. I'm here to deal with what it grows into, which is ultimately murder. And that's what James is picking up on. He's saying it's the same seed, this desire to have, to possess. He goes on, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. That's where it comes from. I'm protecting my kingdom. And this is my stuff, this sin word, this this sin, this turning inward. You can't have it. And so I fight and I quarrel. And he says, you do not have, ironically, because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He's saying, this is the, this is the motive behind all this. And I know I, uh, I may have picked on you earlier by saying, look, New Yorkers, you know, they have to fight for everything. This is not germane to New York. This is not just New York. Let, let me say this. My family in October, we went to the happiest place on earth. We went to Disney World. And one night, somebody at Disney years ago had this idea. There's all these happy people with kids that are still relatively happy, but way past their bedtime every night, let's throw a parade that cannot be missed, right? And let's do it at really like intelligent hours when kids are at their best, from like 9 to 11. Let's make them hungry, and let's, let's make them wait in this parade for it to start. 
I've never seen anything like it. I went to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year, and it did not compare. The people started lining up. I'm like, why are these people sitting here on the curb? That's random at 7 o'clock. Oh, because there's a parade that starts at midnight. You're like, they're waiting now? Like, they know the math, right? They know they have a sundial available somewhere. To, they're, they're, they're ready. When, when that thing started lining up, I've never seen anything like it. As people started crowding in and fighting for their space. And I'm standing here at the, at the, the Magic Kingdom. And, and, and I'm seeing all these little kingdoms. Possess- and what happened was uh, these fights and quarrels. And I heard these two guys, they started yelling, my kids. But people were trying to basically push through and all that. My kids are here. And I'm like, oh, no. And he says, and if you step on my kid, we're going to fight. The guy yells back, curse word. They are screaming curses. And we are right in front of the castle. Like Cinderella's looking out like it's going to go down for real. (laughs) There's about to be a fight at the Magic Kingdom, the happiest place on earth. Because it turns out not even the the happiest place on earth was was still filled with human beings. That's the problem. And, 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 and if you think, yeah, if I could just get away from all the humans, you are one, bro. You'd be like, I just need to get a place where there's no sinners. Well, you can't go. This place is perfect. Ruined, ruined. Now I'm here. That's what the Bible's saying. This stuff is inside of us, and we're all trying to guard our kingdoms. And the way we guard our kingdoms, and I'm tr- you, if you don't make this leap, the whole sermon doesn't make sense. There's one I guess, like, hinge that the whole thing hangs on. I'm making the point that the way they guarded kingdoms back in the day was catapults and fences and all this. The way we guard kingdoms in 2016 is money and possessions. It's money. It's a way of saying, now I'm safe. It's a way of saying, I can protect my kingdom with money. Is it just me? It may be just me. It may be the shows I watch, you know, watching a lot of football or different things. But for whatever reason, it may be that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, getting to a season of life where I'm noticing these things more. But I've noticed a dramatic uptick in investment uh, uh, firms and insurance companies advertising in prime time. And I know that like when you see a beer commercial and there's all these scantily clad, everybody knows, yeah, that's evil. Or you see a you know, car commercial and you're like, here, spend this lease and stuff you can't afford. I'll tell you what strikes me as, as really evil. It's the evil you can't see that's under the surface. And uh, 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 because I know there are probably people who sell insurance and probably people who deal with investments, let me just say, yes, you should get a 401k. Yes, you should have life insurance. I have it. Okay? But the arrogance of a corporation to promise what they promise. I get done with some of those commercials, and I got chills. I hear things like, we can help you protect what you've worked so hard to build. Money can do that. That scares me you know we can we can help you we can put you on a path to get you to a place of security money can do that money can give me secure why don't in the background of all those of all those commercials that promise that why don't they just play praise music money you're mighty to save money you're mighty and if our cash is for us then who could ever stop us And if our cash is for us, why does that sound blasphemous to you as a Christian? Because you would say, no, no money's not mighty to save. Who is? God. And it's a little bit presumptuous to say that money's mighty to save. That's it. See, that's it. We're protecting our kingdoms with a lousy savior. 
money. And that's what these false teachers did. You can see them here in, in, in 1 Timothy 6. Look at what Paul accuses them. He says, oh, I already went over this. These, these guys, they have unhealthy quarreling, evil suspicions. Where does all that, what's underneath all that? Ah, there it is. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that, look, ah, here it is. Godliness is a means of gain, profit. Even these false teachers. Sure, they had a religious guise, but they were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were using religion as a means to protect their little kingdoms with nothing more than the flimsy, lousy savior of money. They think godliness is a means of profit. So, all this fighting comes down to protecting our kingdoms, and we primarily protect our kingdoms with the acquisition of money. That is our earthly kingdom building tool. It's the one we're most trained to use. So what do we do? Interestingly, Paul does not tell them, you might think, wow, the sermon's on fighting and everything. Uh, You might think that at this point, we wrap up the sermon with, therefore, guys, you should stop fighting. The point of the sermon is to stop fighting. That's not what Paul says. That's not what he says. He says to fight. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, to fight the false teachers, to punch them in the mouth. No, 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 no. He says elsewhere that our fight, in fact, our fight is never really against flesh and blood. Did you know that? Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities, powers of the darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. No, what he says is to fight this way. And here it is. <laughs> and here it is. Fight the good fight of the faith. If you want to jot down a one-line point of the whole sermon, that, I nominate that one. Fight the good fight of the faith. Why does he call it a fight? Why does he call it a... Uh, because it's a contest, a struggle, a battle. Why is it a fight of faith? Good question. It's a fight of faith because it's a fight against our natural tendency to trust possessions and money to be our savior instead of trusting God to be our savior. Why is that a fight of faith? Because we can see money. We can see it grow in the bank. It's tangible. It's going to be there for us. You can always rely on it. That looks like a good way to protect my future. God, I cannot see. And I would just have to trust. Have any of you ever driven a car where you've hit so many potholes that eventually it becomes misaligned? Sorry, 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 sorry. You are all right now driving cars that have hit so many potholes that it is right now they are misaligned. When you do that, uh, when a car is perfectly aligned, you could theoretically on a flat straight road just push down the gas and the car would just go, you know. But instead, because your car is misaligned, it pulls one way. And so the whole time you're driving, you have to fight against this and you're pulling it back to keep it on its correct path. What Paul's saying here is the natural tendency of your life, trust money or trust God with your security. He says, you've got this natural tendency. We all do. It's not aligned properly. There's too many potholes we've hit. And what will happen is your, your natural tendency is to go, so fight the good fight of the faith is to constantly, whatever disciplines, whatever training you have to put in your life, to pull yourself out of that to say, I'm not going to trust money to be mighty to save. I'm going to trust King Jesus. I'm going to trust God. There's a natural tendency toward, to, 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 to allow the migration of hope. Our hope was in God. Now it's in money. And to <clears throat> force that back to God, that, that natural drift. Maybe I could ask you some pointed questions. What do you lean on? We all know, <clears throat> you know, we're in church. Do you lean on God or money? The answer is supposed to be God. But look at it this way. Which gives you more anxiety? There is no money. There is no sense of God's presence. How, have you ever been tempted not to be a generous giver because of fear that you wouldn't be safe? Uh, how hard is it for you to do the right thing when you know the shady thing would be so much better financially? 
Uh, do you find yourself fighting over money-related problems in your marriage or at work? Right? Why is that happening? That, that drifting, that natural tendency to put our hope in riches. And just to jump ahead, <clears throat> uh, when he says fight the good fight of faith, I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you jump ahead a few verses, he actually comments on this. He says, as for the rich in this present, present age, tell them not to be haughty or put their hope, hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He knew we would struggle with that. So fight the good fight of faith. <clears throat> the uh, desire to trust in money and riches, this is why it's so important that we fight the good fight of faith. You say, okay, well, what if my car drifts into that? What if I put my hope in riches? These are famous verses, famous, famous verses. <clears throat> you've probably memorized verse 10, even if you didn't know you were memorizing scripture. You've probably said it. And for those of you who didn't know it was a scripture verse, congratulations. You, you have been memorizing scripture all these years. It's verse 9. <clears throat> But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why is that desire to, you know, protect our kingdom? Is why he calls it senseless because money is never meant to be a good savior. And why is it, why is it harmful? <laughs> because you're going to end up hurting yourself with no gratitude and hurting others because you step on them to get ahead. Put succinctly, verse, uh, by the way, verse 9 and 10 say the same thing. 10 is just a different version, and it's the one you've memorized. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. You've heard that, right? And there it is. And he tells you why. It's the same thing. It's through this craving. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The uncertainty of riches. It was never meant, we were never meant to build our kingdom. We were, it was never meant to, to, to protect it and to fight off others using money. As a place to put our hope. Here's the irony of all this, Paul says. If you go back to 6 through 8, I told you we'd jump around, but uh, if you go back to 6 through 8, this is, this is what's, what's great. The irony is, all along, releasing this whole concept and saying, you know what, let, let, let's go back to God. You are my king. I put my hope in you. And I don't have to be at war with all these other people. I'm your child. And I don't have to trust in possessions because what am I trying to protect? This is your kingdom. I'm going to live in your freedom. You know what happens? He says, God, ironically, that's godliness when you do all that. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he gives this unimpeachable logic. Because we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. If we've got food and clothing, with these we'll be content. The word for clothing there is um, body shelter. Isn't that nice? Food and shelter. It's just basics, you know. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Money, ironically, is so uncertain and in the end can't buy contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Who's happier than that? Uh, what, what does it mean to be wealthy? To me, I think to be wealthy would be to have everything I want and still have a little money left over. Ponder this with me. You know there's two ways to be unspeakably rich. There's a really, 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 really hard way and a really, 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 really easy way. The hard way to be unspeakably rich is to win the Powerball lottery. That is so hard. Show of hands, who tried? Write this down. I'm kidding. I was a joke. I was just a funny joke. <laughs> Actually, the best reason for playing the lottery, uh, two people in my church told me, my whole office played the lottery, but for them, they all went in on the same ticket. And they said that um, the guy, he was a Christian, and he said, I was in a real dilemma, but there was like 16 people in his office. And he said, he looked at them all and said, I already do all y'all's work. If you all win the lottery, 
without me and leave. I will then have to do all your work even more. The only reason I'm playing the lottery is because I know you guys will all quit and I don't feel like doing all that work going forward. And I thought, that's a compelling case. And the guy wasn't me. It's not one of those stories that ends. So two ways to, uh, to great riches. One is win the Powerball lottery. Because then, some of you think this, some of you think this. Then if I won the lottery, I could have everything I want with money left over. That's very hard, though. I won't go into the odds, but it's one in bazillion jillion. <laughs> Scientifically. Okay? You're not going to win. But there's an easy way to be unspeakably rich. Have everything you want with money left over. Don't want so much. And then... If you don't want so much, you can have everything you want. Like today, I have everything I want, and I've got money in my pocket. Who is richer than me? Does that ever occur to you? Some of you already won the lottery. Some of you, I won't talk to all of you right now. I'll just talk to a select few. Some of you have really cool kids. You look at your kids, and you're like, I just have good kids. Did it ever occur to you? You won the kid lottery. If you're in here, and you're a kid, and your parents love each other, and they're together... Can I tell you something, kids? You won the parent lottery. You've already won it. People lining up to buy tickets with God's blessing in your life. Some of you have already won it. You look around your life, it's so filled with blessing. And to not want very much, to have godliness with contentment, that's, 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 that's Powerball stuff right there. My magic numbers are 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Right? That's the, that's the red one. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. You're supposed to fight the good fight of the faith. Here's where we come to the yes, but how. <laughs> because if you were here last week, you know it's not enough to be told, like, fight the good fight of the faith, guys. Don't rely on money to build your kingdom. Rely on Jesus Christ to build his kingdom. Uh, I would give some... Um, quick application points and the first is and it kind of goes back to, to how to fight the good fight of the faith uh, train go back to training right not just tra- uh, in fact let me just uh, uh, see if you can finish this sentence when it comes to following Jesus it's not just how hard you try it's also how well you train good w- was hoping for a little more I'm not gonna lie but it's good enough been a long sermon But as for you, O man of God, look at this training, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. It means pursue, flee, train. You're training for this fight. Don't go into war with the enemy who's trying to capture your heart through the deceitfulness of riches, being completely untrained. Go in, one of the best lines from Rocky, I want you to make him feel like he kissed the express train. I love that line. That's what I want to tell Christians who are in battle with Satan, who over and over again are being defeated with no training. Why not train yourself up and make Satan feel like he kissed the express train once in a while, right? Pursue, it doesn't mean you're going to get it right. That's why it doesn't say, what's the problem? Just have righteousness, godliness, faith, love, duh. It says pursue them, go after them. And my favorite one, gentleness. Because the sermon's kind of militant, right? Fight the good fight of faith. But look, fight it with gentleness. Isn't that great? We are gentle warriors. That's a Christian. A Christian is a roaring lamb. Roaring lambs. Because in the end of the day, bullets didn't overthrow the mighty Caesar of Rome. Love did. God didn't send 
another Roman militia to conquer Caesar's Roman militia of oppression and power. He sent a little baby who would love like no one has ever seen. So the first thing is train. I would say, too, as you train, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I love that. Uh, while you're training and while you're going through this crazy world. Can you remember, please, Christian, remember this for me? While, while it looks like riches could be such a good savior and while, you know, all this fighting is going on in the world, please remember that you still have home field advantage. That's easy to forget, isn't it? The world's going crazy. Can we just remember? You are in the presence of God. Home field advantage is very important for some teams in the playoffs. And in, for military might, certainly home terrain would be an advantage. For Christians, it's everything. We have home field advantage. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. There's not a square inch of the universe that's not God's. He gives life to all things in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are fighting addictions, let me talk especially to you. Battling addictions, habits, hurts, and hang-ups. For you, fatigue sets in and you think, how long can I fight? Well, this is the best, I don't know if it's the best I could, it's the best I'm doing, whatever. I thought of this for you. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. How long, Tom, how long do I have to fight? Forever? No, just hold on. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me carefully. You don't have to fight this thing forever. Just hold on. He is, a, he is a soon coming king. And if he comes tonight, just hang on till tonight. If he doesn't come tonight, we'll take one day at a time. Now hold on, because he's coming. And when he comes, there, there will be a military might this time. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the, oh, and this is the last thing. Keep it in perspective. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Here's Paul. You can tell, you can always tell. He starts warming up. He's going to just explode. And this is where his pen explodes. He had to use three pens on this, commentator say. <laughs> he who is the blessed and only sovereign. The king of kings and lord of lords. That's just warming up. Who alone has immortality. Who dwells in unapproachable light. You want to see God? You can't. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's why it takes faith. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever and ever. And he just explodes, right? Uh, and then he looks at Timothy and says, I'm sorry, what were you saying about these opponents? Right? Keep it in perspective. What, are you, what do you need to believe about God that's going to help you fight the good fight of faith this week? What is it that's causing these fights and quarrels? Don't you know, child of God, you're safe. You don't have to fight. You don't have to attack. You don't have to defend. It's not your kingdom. It's his kingdom. I thought of a question that you could apply this week. What, what am I not believing about God right now? Okay, when you get in a situation that's going to happen this week, somebody texts you and you, you immediately want to fire back or, or something happens at work, something threatens you. What am I not believing about God right now that is causing me to feel this way? What is it? Because if I truly believe this is his kingdom and i truly believe that i am ultimately safe no matter what somebody can do even to the worst even to my body even to the people i love in the end we are safe 
in his arms, then what am I fighting for? Right? The real fight is to believe that. And that's why Paul says it is a fight of faith. And so this week, let's bring it back to the fight of faith. Not, what is this person doing to me? I, uh-uh. Not, how can I scheme to crush them? Right? That's the questions we naturally want to ask. Or, well, at least I've got plenty of money to protect me and plenty of possessions. No, the question is, what am I not believing about God right now that's causing me to feel this way? And allow that scripture to then undo the lie with the truth. It's his kingdom. And that's why the fight is a fight of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for a greater trust of you that we might fight the good fight of faith. Thank you for this series on 1 Timothy. Most of all, thank you for your word. Thank you for your unchanging, infallible word that instructs us and guides us and points us true north in a a crooked and, and crazy generation with lots of competing voices. Lord, I pray against the migration of hope that if anyone is tempted to 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 depend on things that are not you, I pray today you'd bring us right back to remembering what's true, remembering this is your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn our attention now. We're going to turn our attention now to the Lord's table. The ushers will begin making their way around and they'll be moving. Uh, One of the things, one of the uh, disciplines I always try to encourage folks when they're taking the Lord's Supper is as the ushers move and, and get everything ready uh, there can be some some you know movement and things but to really quiet my own heart and to think about what this is all about to really be in a posture of receiving and calling forth that's what Jesus says when he says do this in remembrance of me he means call it forth put it in the front of your brain and what are we to remember well here's a couple visual things he gives us he says uh, on the night he was betrayed he took this bread he broke it gave it to his disciples he said this is my body do this in remembrance of me his body was broken for us on the cross and you know that on calvary's cross they sing a lot of times the praise band here at this church sings uh, uh, his love ran red at calvary what that means is his own blood purchased our pardon on calvary's cross jesus after supper took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this moment, quiet reflection, this is the time for believers to call forth and to bring to the front of their mind Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice for us, that we come at his invitation, not our own righteousness. For those who are not yet believers, for those who are seekers, this would be a time to consider the claims of Christ. And while the believers come forward to this table, uh, for you to, to think, And I would invite you to receive Christ, to begin that journey in your own life. That would be our great prayer for you. But as I said, the ushers will be moving around, and they know how to get us uh, to the table in a reverent manner. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.